Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Last week I made the claim that death and not sin is the primary human problem as portrayed both in the New Testament and the early church. And today I'd like to build on that argument and explain it and why that's an important understanding. We know that Ignatius, Irenaeus, Basil, Athanasius, key Greek fathers or early fathers of the church, that they looked upon salvation as first and foremost redemption from death. And in the early church and Eastern tradition, death and not sin is definitive and primary in the human predicament. And so while in the West, the presumption has been that sin is primary and precedes death in terms of cause and effect, I think the biblical portrayal is that the reign of death is the cause of sin. And I think that's an important understanding. But it's been rendered obscure, and maybe it's even an inaccessible concept for some, because we've presumed Augustinian original sin, which is the idea that people are born completely darkened, or that they've inherited guilt, and that sin is a mysterious thing that we really can't understand. I think that we can understand it. And in this concept, we can understand where it comes from and what it is. And so if we can set aside the Augustinian notion, I think it's clear that death and not sin is pictured as primary. We said this last week when we read 1 Corinthians. It is death in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that is the last enemy. Death and Hades, you know, the play, Hades is just the place of the dead. In Revelation 20, 14, they're the last thing to be thrown into the lake of fire. We know that Paul describes his own struggle with this body of death. And sin, we remember the little test I gave you last week, and I failed my own test. <laughs> It is that sin is the sting or result of death. And it's not the other way around. That is, death is not the sting of sin. Actually, I just said this to somebody this week, and they didn't believe me. I said, well, go look it up. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The problem is not that sin reigns and then comes death. But death accounts for the spread of sin because death, as it says in Romans 5, 12, it spread to all men. Death reigned, verse 14. The many died, verse 15. Death reigned through the one, that is the first Adam. He's the head of the race of those that are dominated by death as sin Verse 21, reigned in death. And so the conclusion, sin reigned in death, it's not the other way around. And this is Paul's explanation. It is not sin that is inherited from Adam, as Augustine taught, as Calvin taught. 
But we know that people die. It is death which Adam passed on. And so with death comes sin, but not inevitably. Paul doesn't believe, as Augustine believed, that an infant or a baby or someone that is just newly you know, conceived, that they're conceived in guilt. Paul never says that. In fact, Paul speaks of people who have never sinned in, in the manner of Adam. I think he's, you know, we can think of many classes of people that have never sinned, that there are people that are innocent. Now, Adam sinned and introduced death, so there, that's the order, you know, that with the spread of death, though, sin becomes a contagion, and that's what the New Testament is describing. And it's this dynamism in which death is the cause and not the effect. And this then accords with Paul's parallel picture of Christ. Christ introduces righteousness and eternal life into the world so that his introduction of life spreads righteousness to all of humanity. What is righteousness? Well, it's equated with life. So what was done in the first Adam is undone in the second Adam. That's Paul's argument in Romans 5. Sin introduced death to all, not because all sin, so too righteousness introduced life, the righteousness of Christ. And it says in verse 17 of Romans 5, even more abundantly, as life and righteousness overflow to the many, to all. But the question is why? Why does death cause sin? And of course, part of this explanation has to this is the picture of the deception of the devil who exercises his power through the fear of death. It is not that death or mortality per se can be equated with sin, but look at Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so we understand that the temptation of Satan or the enslaving power of Satan involves the power of death. Not that he gets to decide who dies and when, but he enslaves people to this fear of death. And so the explanation there in Hebrews is that Jesus was intended to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Paul will describe the same thing in Romans 8.15, that people have been enslaved by fear, the fear of death. And so the reason the Son of God appeared was, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the devil's work. And that is the devil's work. This gives us an organic connection between the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the human predicament. At the beginning of Revelation, it says that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. I guess the keys unlock the chains that have bound us. And so... He has taken control from Satan, what was under Satan's power. He has the power then to free us. We can, I think, specify in what fear of death might consist. John equates, you know, that love casts out all fear. 
This is 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Two things are equated by John, love and life. Where there is life, there is love. Where there is love, there is life. The fear that would obstruct love is cured through the love of Christ. This is 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 3.14 says, on the other hand, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. You want to know if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're in Christ? He who does not love, though, abides in death. And so love is a sign of the life, the new life that we have. And John goes on to say, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now this, we have the word martyr. Martyr just means witness. The early martyrs were those who witnessed to Christ, and then it came to be those who actually laid down their lives literally. And so fear of death does not allow you to be a witness of Christ. Because fear of death leaves one under the control of death. It incapacitates love. And the way John describes it, if you don't love, if you hate your brother, then this gives rise to violence. He equates it with violence. Think of two columns here. In one column, fear, death, hatred, and violence. They all go together. That's one option. The other is life, love, abiding in Christ, and laying down life for others constitutes this other option. I think we could also add one more thing at the top of the column. One column is a lie. One column is a deception. The other column is the truth. This is why when we talk about Christ is the truth, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth and life are interconnected. But we might still wonder why captivity to fear, why does that give rise to lovelessness or an incapacity for love? What is it precisely in fear of death that enslaves, that leads to violence? Let me read from another Bible book. Do you know the, the Book of Wisdom? It is not in the Protestant Bible, but it's in the Orthodox Bible, it's in the Catholic Bible. The idea is explained in the Book of Wisdom as to why Hades, or the place of the dead, has come to reign in place of God, actually. It says, for they reasoned unsoundly, that is the ungodly, saying to themselves, Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a life comes to its end. That is, life is a mystery. We die. That's it. And no one has been known to return from Hades. Hades is the place that's just the grave. The graveyard is, the, is Hades. We were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we had never been. 
For the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and reason is a spark kindled by the beating of our hearts, and when it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. Kind of a nihilistic picture. As a result, death, wisdom says, is invited into a person's life. As those who are captured by it say, let none of us fail to share in our revelry. Let's have a good time. Eat, drink, and be merry, as it says in Ecclesiastes. For tomorrow we die. Everywhere let us leave signs of enjoyment, because this is our portion and this is our lot. Let us oppress the righteous, poor man. Let us not spare the widow or regard the gray hair of the aged. But let our might be our law of right. Might makes right. For what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is an inconvenience to us. He opposes our actions. He reproaches us for our sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. So there, here is a picture of the thinking of evil. How evil arrives. Fear of death. Death is the end of life. You better grab all the gusto you can. Grab all the life you can. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Now actually in the Eastern Church they read the story of Genesis through the lens of a that we get in wisdom and that is it's death that comes to be shared you know this is the picture in wisdom it's explaining what's the thought behind this reign of death Richard Beck argues the main impulse of the story of Genesis given how the Orthodox follow the framing like a book in, of wisdom he says it's less about how the world became infected by sin than how it became infected by death. And I think that's right. We see the root cause of death isn't sin. Even in Genesis, as the devil or the serpent, they actually predate sin. It's the envy of the devil. And so in this understanding, it's not that sin is a mystery. We can follow the wisdom, you know, the idea here in the, the book of wisdom, and the, actually it's the same reasoning in Ecclesiastes, and I think it's that reasoning that's there in Genesis. It's not like Augustine pictured it, that sin is a mystery. No, we can follow the thinking. It can be understood how the disease and the corruption of death give rise to sin. Just look at the first after Adam and Eve, there's Cain and Abel. Augustine pictures that all are born depraved, totally depraved. But actually, 1 John 3.12 says about Cain and Abel that Abel is righteous and Cain is not. And it's because of Abel's righteousness that Cain attacks him and kills him. And maybe this explains why Abel and his type are outpopulated by Cain and his type. You know, the harmless Abels of the world are going to be killed off by the ruthless Cains of the world. 
We understand how a righteous man like Noah might find himself all alone. Because if you're righteous, I guess you get killed off. And so Genesis, I think like wisdom, is explaining why this murderous competition in life arises because it's pictured that life is a kind of zero-sum game and you better grab all of the life you can while the grabbing is good. Now, wisdom puts it, it says God did not intend it to be this way. God did not bake death and he does not delight in the death of the living. For he created all things that they might exist. I'm quoting wisdom. The generative forces of the world are wholesome and there is no destructive poison in them. And the dominion of Hades is not on earth. For righteousness is immortal. Righteousness comes from God. Righteousness is life. It's equated with immortality. I believe this fits with Genesis. But it just fits with what's obvious. And that is, people die. This creates a limit condition in which people are desperate. And I think this shows up as wisdom describes it in a desperation to find pleasure when and where it is possible. Or a desperation like that of Cain. You know, Cain just pictured maybe that there is only so much of God's favor to go around. And so I better get it. And the only way I can get it is to do away with my brother. Or maybe it's like in Babel that they are going to make their name great. You know, this is the picture. Babel is compared to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. The Babelites say, well, we'll make our own name great. We'll build this tower so that we are not dispersed by death. And so the psychology of the fear of death, I think it can take any number of forms, maybe an infinite variety of forms. But God does not intend us to live in this way, in this desperate fashion. As mortal creatures separated from God's spirit, humans are fearful. We're survival driven. Indeed, the Darwinian picture, the survival of the fittest, that can be the way that we're driven. So the mortal drive to self-preservation makes us vulnerable to fear of death and the desire to preserve our existence at all costs. This is Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes is kind of a famous atheistic character. Mark Leela describes, he uses Thomas Hobbes to describe how fear of death gives rise to violence. Quoting Leela, it says, Natural man, according to Hobbes, is desiring man, which also means he is fearful man. If he finds himself alone in nature, he will try to satisfy his desires. And he will only partially succeed and will fear losing what he has. But if other human beings are present, that fear will be heightened to an um, almost unbearable degree. Given his awareness of himself as a creature beset by desire, a stream of desire that ends, says Hobbes, only in death, he assumes others are similarly driven. I want your stuff and I assume you want my stuff. Whoever so looketh into himself and considereth what he doth, Hobbes writes, 
he shall thereby read and know what are the thoughts and passions of all other men. That means he can think of them only as potential competitors, trying to satisfy desires that may come into conflict with his own. And that is why the natural social condition of mankind is war. If not explicit war, then armed hostilities. If not armed hostilities, then a perpetual readiness in preparation for violence and conflict. This certainly fits with James' description. In James 4, 1-2, the church is quarreling. They're even growing violent. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your desires, your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. I think that fits the picture of Hobbes. Why is there violence in the world? Because of human desire, motivated by want, by lack, by scarcity. You know, it may be real or it may be an imagined scarcity. And this clarifies why in overcoming fear of death, you know, that's the very specific point, that only with that is there a capacity for love. You can't fear your neighbor and love your neighbor. You can't be in competition with your neighbor and love your neighbor. And John describes this love as a self-sacrificial love. But don't make it too hard before you need to. John makes it very simple. If you see someone who is lacking something, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother, John says, in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Can you share, that's what John is asking, to obtain, to possess, to survive? It will go against the simple act of sharing with our neighbors. And of course, love is not possible apart from literal sharing. And so I think Christ breaks the grip that Hobbes describes, that James describes that is described in the fear of death. This thing that has a grip on us, of course, gets a grip on Christ. He faces the worst of human situations. But it's in his defeat of death that Christ opens a way beyond death to life. This is Basil, who was an early church father. He writes, to the extent that man stood apart from life, in like amount he also drew closer to death. For life is God, and the deprivation of life is death. You know, death can be described not just the end of life, it describes an orientation. And in Christ, this orientation is changed up, that life and righteousness are opened up as an alternative. Athanasius the Great writes, When by the counsel of the devil men turned away from things eternal, they returned to the things of corruptibility and became themselves the cause of dissolution unto death. And so in the defeat of the devil, Christ turns men back to life, not to dissolution, not to being undone, and death itself is defeated. 
This is John Chrysostom. He who fears death is a slave and subjects himself to everything in order to avoid dying. But he who does not fear death is outside the tyranny of the devil. For indeed, man would give skin for skin and all things for the sake of life. Job 2.4 And if a man should decide to disregard this, whose slave is he then? He fears no one, is in terror of no one, is higher than everyone, and is freer than everyone. For he who disregards his own life disregards more so all other things. And when the devil finds such a soul, he can accomplish in it none of his works. Tell me though, what can he threaten? The loss of money? The loss of honor? Or exile from his country? These are small things to him who counteth not even his life dear. He's quoting Paul from Acts 20. Do you see that in casting out the tyranny of death, he has dissolved the strength of the devil? And so this defeat of the fear of death, this explains the overcoming of sin, of Satan. It frees one from slavery. There's an organic connection between the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the human predicament and problem. I think we lose that organic connection when we make sin a mystery and we imagine that sin does not have an orientation that we can explain to death. It defeats the devil and it opens one to love. And love is equated with life, with righteousness. Here is a mode of life that gives life. It shares life. It does not hoard life. You know, this is the passage that Jesus is it's quoted in all four Gospels. He who would save his life will lose it. That our systems of self-salvation, in fact, our death-dealing systems, he who would hoard life will lose life because the very act of hoarding life is already a loss of life. And so there is a kind of slavery, I think, that is depicted in this self-salvation system, driven by fear, lack, the attempt to preserve what is rendered absent in the very attempt. You can't keep life and have life. Only one willing to give up the death-dealing grab to save the self has access to life. He who would lay down his life for my sake in the kingdoms, Christ says, he has life. Let me close by reading from Philippians 2, 3 to 8. And this passage, I think we, you know, what Paul is doing in Philippians, he's saying Christ is a model for us. We, we fail to picture the sense in which the death of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, is to be a model. It's not just this is something that he did and we don't have to. No, he did it. He took up the cross so that we too can take up the cross and follow him. This is Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the selfish and empty conceit, which enslaves to death, which is definitive of sin, is undone in the one who reversed the instinct behind the fear of death. And this then, he becomes the means to taking up the cross. Christ took up the cross and enables us to take up the cross, overcome, defeat the fear of death, and this is the defeat of sin and the devil. It becomes the means to life, it becomes the defeat of sin. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.